you, I'd invite you to open up a Bible on your phone in paperback or hardback to Romans 5. That's where we'll be this morning. If you're like me and it helps to write stuff down while in church so you stay on track, it is a blank filler's paradise this morning. I recognize you don't always get systematic clarity with me, but we're going to walk right down a numbered list, if you can believe it. And I should hit all of them. So just good times ahead. I want you right now to think in your mind or physically write down. Some of you are list takers, and so it might be helpful even to just jot these down. But I want you to think in your mind or write down a list of your gains. What gains have you had in life? And it could be that's a wide open question as to what that looks like. What have you gained? Thank you, James. It very well could be weight. Here's the second question. How do you protect what you've gained? So you've all had gains and you realize, you've lived enough life to realize that sometimes those things slip through your fingers. What have you gained and what do you do to protect your gains? Jesus basically taught lesson that Paul is going to expand on here in Romans 5 in a couple of short verses in Matthew. Here's what he says. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth eats them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. What do I treasure and is it safe? We're going to look this morning at the gospel and what treasure the gospel is. You may have heard of the idea that people find the gospel immensely valuable to them and you didn't know why. Maybe currently you don't know why. You don't know what the big deal is. Maybe you've asked yourself, what are the benefits of belief? So I'm going to believe this. What are the benefits of that? I want to assure you, that's not an unspiritual task to go about. Trying to figure out the aims of the gospel. In fact, I would say that someone who is trying to preach to you, that it sounds too good to be true and sort of buries the cost of it in the fine print, uh, actually becomes uh, somewhat of a person you may not want to trust. They sound like a schmaltzy salesman that's just trying to get you to see the good without seeing the negative. I'll tell you who never did that is Jesus. Jesus never buried the cost of it in the fine print. He would, he would put that out uh, front and center. You know, Paul has laid out the utter bad news of it all in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's not just that we're bad off, it's that we're ruined. And it's not that we can help ourselves, it's that we don't even know that we need to help ourselves. That's the state that we find ourselves But preceding the good news of the gospel is bad news. The good news is that there's good news. And the good news is, of course, grace is received by faith. When he writes in Romans 5.1, take a look at it, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, therefore, since we have been justified, is built on this foundation of everything that I just said. It's all that we've read so far in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have. And what I want to do this morning is from Romans 5, I want to show you what we have because we've been justified by faith. And if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first is this. Grace legitimizes the illegitimate. And the key word I want you to zero in on in verse 1 is peace. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Maybe when you hear, or maybe when you first heard the invitation of the gospel, you kind of glossed over it and ignored it. And maybe it didn't have anything to do with the fact that you were outright rejecting the possibility of it, but maybe in your head you had this lodged reality that said this, I don't qualify, so why even apply if I know I'm going to get rejected at the outset? You know, the word illegitimate is a powerful word. Some of you may have been raised and live with shadows of the word illegitimate hovering over you. Many people use the word, but God has the final word. In high school, I was fortunate enough to have a group of friends that from the neighborhood, we all kind of grew up together. And by the time I got to high school, the group that I was with, all my buddies from the local neighborhood, we were sort of the the brainiac jocks. We were the sport nerds, so to speak. And that was the group that I hung out with. And right around junior, senior year, what happened was this. Almost all of my friends began to apply and get acceptance letters from a bunch of really great colleges. And they were applying to colleges that through financial blockades, GPA blockades, SAT score blockades, I wasn't going to get into. So, I applied to the University of Saratoga, also known as West Valley College, and I got in. So that's, I became a Viking, a proud Viking. After getting my GE at West Valley, I went to a school that when I would go around our city and tell them where I studied, I would routinely be met with shock and awe that there was a Christian college in San Jose. You go to San Jose Christian College? I didn't even know we had a Christian college. That was the school I went to. asked about our March Madness uh, record ever. After graduating from school, I would be met with this question, well, what seminary did you attend? I would say, well, I didn't. People would ask, are you ordained? Nope. Well, what church do you pastor? And they'd say, never heard of it. And then they'd say, well, do you at least have one of those cool collars or a robe or something? Nope, none of that. So I stand before you today and I say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I am pleased to say this, God raises up servants to serve in amazing church families so that the power of God is on display and not the pastor's great pedigree. Now, I don't look down on great schools. I don't look down on some of those things I just mentioned. But the way God orchestrated my life, I say I am what I am by the grace of God. Grace legitimizes This peace that is established with us in God happens at the moment of belief in Jesus Christ. And catch this, it's objective, not subjective. What I mean by that is this, it's not based on a feeling, it is a settled fact. That's why he writes, therefore, since you have been justified, it's a done deal. Mike Iaconelli writes of a time when the state track and field championships were hosted in his little town in Northern California. He tells a story of this uh, this girl that he sees, and she, he thinks maybe she's a coach because her feet are all twisted and she can barely walk. And it turns out she's entered in the 3,200-meter race. And as he watches this race, he says, you know, decades later, I don't have a clue who won, but the entire town can tell you who lost that day and came in last place. Because as she crossed the, the finish line, we were all on our feet cheering. And he concludes with these words. The grace of God says to you and me, I can make last place more significant than first place. 
I will use prostitutes to teach others about gratitude. I will use lepers as examples of cleanliness. I'll take the men who persecuted the church and make them its pillars. I'll take the dead and give them life. I'll take the uneducated fishermen and make them the fishers of men. God's grace doesn't exist to make us successful. God's grace exists to point people to a love like no other love that they have ever known. Number two, look at verse two. Grace includes the excluded. Through Him, we have obtained access, that key word access, by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I've mentioned before, I have a very famous cousin. Just so happens he's famous in a different country. And when I was with him one time, after a family function, kind of deep in the heart of, of Mexico, we're in Mexico City, and I'm going to hang with him for a day, stay at his place, and he's going to drive to the airport the next morning. As we're rolling around town, his fans, were, it was just evident that he had many, many, many fans and lots of recognition. So when we went and ate when we walked through the mall, when we went and toured some sites in Mexico City, um, there was all these people who, who knew my cousin. Now, he had a security detail with him. That's how he rolls. And if someone that knew my cousin, in fact, I have no doubt that some of the people that saw him that day actually know, know more facts about my cousin than I do. But the reason that if we were to have a family holiday meal... I would be sitting at the table with him and other people weren't, is I have access from one simple thing. I know him and he knows me. We're just related. We have a relationship. There's coming a day when one single question that is going to be the single greatest question that you'll be met with. And it's this. Do you know Jesus Christ? And does Jesus Christ know you? Now again, I know we have some math nerds in here that are like, that's two questions. Let me simplify it. Ready? Are you in relationship with Jesus Christ? There's coming a day when that one question is going to be all that matters. And here's the shocking teaching of the scriptures. Jesus said this, not some or a few, but out of his words come this statement. Many on that day will think they have access to me and they'll be utterly shocked when I say to them, These words found in Matthew 7. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is it that these people come and expect to gain access from? They roll off their tongue their works. Didn't we do great things for you? We cast out demons. We did this. We did that. And Jesus says, I don't know you. It's like a fan coming and knowing all about my cousin, but he doesn't know them. It has to be both ways. Christian, we live in grace that celebrates and marvels at what Jesus has done and not at what we can or might be able to do for him. That's what we celebrate here on Sundays. That's what we wake up to Monday mornings and continue to marvel at and walk in. Number three, grace makes bad days better. And the key word here is joy. It says this in verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, I had just written these words on my computer screen, I think it was around Tuesday. 
I jotted down this thought after thinking on this passage. Joy is not dependent on the weather, on circumstances, or on our current state of our relationships. And not more than a half an hour later, I received a text from a friend. And in that text, this person wrote almost verbatim what I just wrote. And I just had to share back with that person. I said, I just wrote these words, and I just wrote it off of this text of Scripture. And the person wrote back. It was just a cool little exchange to go, wow, isn't God good to just... And this person's living this. They had what you would definitely regard a really bad week. Some of you were with us in the Turbulent series. When we started the Turbulent series, we looked at six weeks, just different kinds of turbulence that comes into our life. And we kind of reminded ourselves that turbulence is just a matter of when, it's not if, right? And there's this Reliant K song that has this great line that says this, When the nightmare finally does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. Let me tell you a couple of truth statements that I absolutely know. I don't know your suffering. I can't possibly imagine your response to the suffering or the feelings that you're having, although there are some commonalities. Pain is unique to the individual. Here's some perspective truth statements I hope that will encourage you. Number one is this. Your suffering is not out of hand. It's not out of hand. God has it right in his hands. He's sovereign over your suffering. Number two is this. Your suffering is not eternal life threatening. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is hidden in him. It is not eternal life threatening. Number three is this. Your suffering has an end date. Isn't it good when you're going through the midst of a very difficult challenge and storm to say, this has an expiration date. This is going to end. And here's what I know. Either you will end, which means your suffering will end and you'll be with the Lord Jesus Christ, or your suffering will end. There's coming an end date. And not only does it have an expiration date, it has an end goal. To just know there's a purpose to our pain. And that God will use that to grow us and produce character and produce hope. Consider with me a few things that are useless until they're broken. A glow stick, right? It doesn't function the way it should until you hear that crackle and you kind of break it up. How about an egg? Until that eggshell breaks, whether it's a live chicken side that goes on about its life or part of your breakfast that decorates your bacon, that shell needs to break, right? Or else that egg is useless. Jesus said this in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks... And broke it. And in that picture, in that image of a loaf of bread sitting on your table and you cut into it, that bread is useless unless it's broken. And as he handed it around to his disciples on that last supper, he's handing it around and he's really pointing to a deeper truth, isn't he? We have access as sinners. We have access to the grace of God only through the broken body of our Savior. So it turns out, some turbulence isn't just like tolerable, but it's actually necessary. It's necessary that we're broken so that God can use uh, how, how we're designed to be used. Here's the next one. Grace powers the impotent. And the key word here is spirit. Verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We looked at Abraham last week. Abraham was impotent in the way that we think of the word, at least according to everyone around him. And as he assessed his own body, he would say the same thing. But remember what we said about faith last week. Faith sometimes 
is opposed to appearances. It's never opposed to reason. So there are moments in time where you say appearances dictate that, that this is not reality, but I know that there's more to reality than the way that things appear. And the truth is that grace powers the impotent. I put a post online this week just on the city that just asked people to finish this sentence. Finish this sentence because of the Holy Spirit, dot, dot, dot. And here are some things just from our own church family that people wrote. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are here and fostering children. Because of the Holy Spirit, my daughter is a cancer survivor. Because of the Holy Spirit, I have a vision for my spiritual growth. Because of the Holy Spirit, I am excited to serve others in need. Because of the Holy Spirit, I'm convicted of sin, pushed toward repentance, and guided into truth. Because of the Holy Spirit, I am drug and alcohol free for three years this May. Because of the Holy Spirit, I am still standing under the burdens of my life. Because of the Holy Spirit, I was able to choose to live again after my divorce, which left me completely broken. Because of the Holy Spirit, I know that I am never alone. And lastly, because of the Holy Spirit, I am found in Christ and Him in me. That's but a sampling. There's more. You can check it out on the city. Very encouraging just to read through the list. Friends, what gain is there like the very presence of God, not just with you every step of the way, but in you? This is what we have by faith. Number five. Grace clears the condemned. And the key word in verse 9 is the word saved. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The joy of a Christian is this. It's not just that, that your record is cleared because of punishment that's been met, but your name is cleared. And not just cleared, it's bolstered. You're given a massive upgrade. Because with the righteousness of Christ. Consider on, that on the very day that Jesus died, we got to see sort of a glorious picture of these dimensions of God's love on display. There's a thief on the left and right. There are criminals paying for their crime with their very life. And the Gospels record that early on in the day, they are both hurling insults at Jesus, mocking him. And in the final hours of life, a man convicted and paying for his crime simply cries out for mercy. And think about this. Is this unfair? I mean, it's a simple prayer of faith and he gets access to God. Is it unlikely? You've got a criminal who gets to enjoy paradise with Jesus. He's an enemy. He's an outsider. He's a convict. He's condemned. I would say he's having a really, really bad day. But grace changes the story. You know, we stand and cheer, not only because he's forgiven, but because his name is restored. Think about this. Centuries later, this thief on the cross is regarded as a blessed man. This thief on the cross is regarded as a man of faith. It's so powerful to consider this. How much time did this man have to go off and start a ministry sharing the gospel to tribal groups. 
How much time did he have to hurry up and get some scripture memorized that he probably should have been memorizing all along? How much time did he have to join a Bible study? How much time did he have to go and get baptized? None of it. And yet from the very words of Jesus Christ, his sentence is cleared and his name is cleared. And here we are celebrating and considering this man blessed centuries later. That's a picture of grace. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He clears our record. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleared and clean is how Jesus leaves His disciples. Praise God. Finally, number six, Grace befriends the outcast. And the key word is reconciled. Verse 10 says this, For while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He starts this passage with a legal term, that we're justified. And now he's moving on to a friendship or relational term, that we're reconciled. And it's not just that Jesus is friendly to us, but he welcomes us in. We know from other places in Scripture, we're actually adopted into the family. So consider our new forever family is the very family of God that goes on forever. Those of us who are hopeless to get in, get in on all the good life God has to offer because of grace. So when you hear someone say that they're saved by Jesus, I hope you'll think about a little passage in Romans chapter 5. And in just one small section, you begin to see a rounded out picture of what that all means. Look back at the words you just wrote in if you're taking notes. Peace, access, joy, the Holy Spirit, reconciliation. If you're a Christian this morning, this is your treasure. This is what you have. And as you consider becoming a Christian and placing your belief in Jesus, this treasure is what made, what made sense to you to sell everything else so that for sure at least you would gain this here. Now the question I want to leave you with this morning is this. Is it safe? Is this treasure you possess in Christ safe and secure? Remember from last week, I don't care what you believe in, religious or not, no matter what we're talking about, um, testing produces clarity. So as you test what you believe in, you either grow in your belief or it weakens and doubt begins to creep in. Committed love is demonstrated through sacrifice. Some of you may have been told, may, maybe you'll be able to remember actually, the first time you were told by someone, I love you. And the powerful emotions that that stirs up and brings, you know, brings to light. And then when someone says, I love you, and then has actions to back it up, you can remember the feeling of going, wow, this person really means it. They're actually acting on it, not just saying it. But when you catch someone who says they love you and is displaying actions that they love you, when you catch someone in self-sacrifice for you as the beloved... That is a whole new depth of the human experience. There's a whole new security that comes on when you see, wow, not only is there words, not only is there actions, but there is self 
sacrifice. Sacrificial love screams security. This last week, I was on a couple of different visits. And I got to witness firsthand, a few feet away, talking to two different people that displayed, that put on display for me their marriage vows in a very profound way. The words that came to mind were this, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And as I sat with two different couples, unrelated visits, what I realized was this, there are a hundred little daily sacrifices that are going on that is absolutely shouting to their spouse, I love you. And I was thinking about the one being loved and thought, wow, what security there is when vows aren't just words or actions when it's convenient. What's powerful about both these couples is one had riches and now not so much. One had health and now not so much. And to see it carried out on both ends is amazing. You know, the love of God is all the more powerful when you see the object of His love. You don't need to read this. This isn't an eye test, but just take a look. This is our passage. Now watch this. This is the condition of each person in God's family when He chose to love them. Ready? Here it is. When we see the condition, we are all the more secure. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Paul worked exceedingly hard to make sure that those that he pastored, those that he shepherded, knew what they believed. He wanted to comfort them with truth, and he worked tirelessly to make sure this happened. You know why? Because a tactic of the enemy is this. A tactic of the enemy is to get a follower of Jesus Christ to question their salvation. The tactic of the enemy is to come and whisper lies and convince you that you're not saved or that you better keep on track or else you may become unsaved. The good news is this. Speculation can be replaced by security as we daily walk in relationship with Jesus. You can take your speculation and insecurity and have it be replaced simply by walking daily in relationship with our Savior. You know, in God's rich wisdom and generosity, we are gifted as a church with something called communion. You may have heard it called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. It's all the same thing. And what it is, is it's a celebration and an ongoing remembrance of the greatest demonstration of self-sacrificial love ever seen or heard. Verse 8 says this, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If you're taking notes, jot these final few things down. As we've looked at Romans, we've taken each section of Scripture and just say, what is it that God does for us? So we can just sit and marvel at that and rest in that 
and not try to accomplish God's part for him. So if you're taking notes, here's what God does. God gives us gospel treasure. It's just a gift. Secondly, he secures it forever. The treasure is unlike any gain you've ever had, and the security provided for it is unlike anything you've ever gained. Finally, he dwells in us for all of time. So what are we to do in response to this? We don't do these things. We keep it really clear. This is God work over here. How should we respond? Well, let me suggest a couple of ideas. Number one, stop questioning what God has settled. I mean, think about it. How disrespectful and distrusting is it if God settles something and has spoken to it and you say, yeah, but you really need my help uh, doing a couple of good deeds this week or being really faithful and responsive in my love. Stop questioning what God has settled. Number two, make sure that we know Jesus and that he knows us. The way you do this is you relate to God on his terms. I think many people are insecure in their relationship with God precisely because they relate to God the way they relate to everyone else. Therefore, their relationship with God feels like those with other people. It may be friendship like I thought it was, but we were just a business exchange. That was really just a vendor. They're not my friend. I thought because we had spent 20 years together doing this project together or being related and sharing Thanksgiving that that we were really tight, but it turns out that's not true. So some people possess a deep insecurity in the relationship with God because they've manufactured it and relate to God on their terms. I want to invite the band up right now, and as we enter into a time of communion, let me tell you, or just set the stage a little bit with a couple of thoughts. One is this, communion is a family worship table, and so it's, it's really an invitation to Christians. It's a meaningless ritual that I would ask you not to participate in if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're actually told not to let this just become a meaningless ritual. But this is something Jesus gave to his followers, and it's really family worship. And what we're about to do is to eat the flesh of Jesus. And I want to say that bluntly out front, because to some of you, that lands shockingly on your ears. I say it that way because I don't want to soften the way Jesus said it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you just just a lengthy passage from the mouth of Jesus Christ about what we're about to do. And after I read this, the band is going to just lead us in about three songs. And over the course of those three songs, I would just say once the music begins, you're invited when you're ready to come up and participate in the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Jesus poured out for you. And as we do that, to marvel and savor this tasting of forgiveness, this, this objective reality that's, that's ours, and now we get to participate in a unique way. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 6. It may help to close your eyes. You don't have to, but there's nothing on the screen. Maybe this will help you just kind of hear this better. He says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer to the world, may live is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, This is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him.